friends and enemies. It's episode 211 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And, you know, we we are in the midst of a uh, just a massive downturn in the tech economy right now. Uh, you know, layoffs are happening all over the place. You know, Twitter's getting all of the news, of course, but, you know, Meta slash Facebook laid off 11,000 people. Uh, you know, Amazon has been laying off thousands of quote unquote technology and corporate jobs. So these are not, you know, mass, the kind of seasonal layoffs that happen in their warehousing, even though we're coming into the Christmas season. So they're actually going to be doing a lot of seasonal hiring for the Christmas season, but laying off a lot of their, you know, white collar HQ jobs, uh, plus a ton more. Crunchbase has a layoff tracker uh, that they've got going, a, a ro- uh, an ongoing updating uh, database uh, tracking all of the different layoffs across technology companies and startups. Uh, and it's it's a lot, folks. Uh, I haven't gone through and, and done like a total tally on, their crun- on the Crunchbase database in large part because there are just like... Well over a hundred companies in the in their layoff tracker that are being listed, tra- laying off anywhere from a dozen folks to thousands uh, of folks, and so massive downturn in the in the tech economy right now. And you know we love we love to see it in some ways. Uh, <laughs> this is the inevitable bubble bursting, and it's not just crypto, but it's you know it's happening all over. And part of that is happening because of uh, the very rapid inflation of a pandemic bubble that benefited a lot of tech companies, whereas uh, the entire the rest of the economy was depressed. Uh, and now that things are getting back to something like normal, that bubble is bursting uh, just as quickly as it inflated. And so one of the th- big things that we see happening here is also the kind of Leading up to the pandemic, companies like Uber, you know, gig companies were already starting to slow down their growth. They were having to increase prices, uh, you know, roll back some of their you know subsidies and discounts that they were using to artificially inflate uh, their market. And so they were already leading up to that. The pandemic gave them, you know, some of them, especially the instant delivery and food delivery apps that we'll, we're going to talk about this episode, gave them a massive uh, injection of capital and revenue and users. But the receding of that uh, as the kind of pandemic is, you know, not gone, of course, but getting back into a new normal uh, has been more detrimental to these uh, companies than the artificial kind of VC subsidies and pandemic boosts they got to the point where a lot of them are also just collapsing. And so I, we're, I want to talk about that. We're going to talk about that this episode. Uh, you know, the kind of the, 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 the rise, fall, and aftermath of, uh, platform capitalism, uh, er, you know, platform urbanism, platform logistics, all of this. And so to have us, uh, to help us talk through this, uh, is, the excellent Aaron Shapiro, who has a great book out uh, called Design, Control, Predict, Logistical Governance in the Smart City, and wrote a very, uh, very good and very prescient article that came out in the Journal of Consumer Culture earlier this year called Platform Urbanism in a Pandemic, Dark Stores, Ghost Kitchens, and the Logistical Urban Frontier, which means that Aaron is 
better situated than anybody to uh, talk about what's happening right now. So Aaron, thanks for coming on TMK. Yeah, glad to be here. Well, we're happy to have you because uh, your your article in the Journal of Consumer Culture has been on our list for a long time of being like, we need to get Aaron on to talk about it. It's a really, really great analysis. We'll go through it. It's a really original and interesting analysis. And then, you know, Bloomberg just had Bloomberg Business Week just had this really big piece come out a couple weeks ago um, titled GoPuff layoffs signal instant deliveries demise. It's a really big, nice, investigated, reported piece talking about GoPuff, and we'll we'll talk about who they are, but kind of using the story of GoPuff as a a, a kind of a stand-in for the larger kind of instant delivery market or economy as a whole, which is just completely going under. So, I don't know. Could you maybe set this, help us set the scene a little bit and talk about these like instant delivery, dark store, ghost kitchen kind of platforms. Like what is this for people unfamiliar? What is this technology? What is this market? Yeah. So the paper, the platform urbanism in a pandemic paper is really focused on these two, I don't know, organizational forms. These two, like really just kind of business buzzwords, but also like a, a reformatting of space, um, dark stores and ghost kitchens um, that, you know, started popping up in, in the trade press, uh, like restaurant dive and these kinds of places, um, even before the pandemic, but really started accelerating in, in spring 2020, summer 2020. When I wrote the article, it was... December 2020, uh, I had uh, that that year. I had moved from Philadelphia to North Carolina to start my job, and I was back in Philly for Christmas and just like looking at the the city that I'm from, Philly as well. Looking at the city and seeing how many businesses were closing at the same time that there was this um, huge optimism around these new models, dark stores and ghost kitchens. Um, the you know walking down the street in center city, Philadelphia and seeing all these closed storefronts, um, and knowing that there's this appetite and all this, this investment going on to try to turn these empty storefronts in downtown, uh, downtown areas or areas close to where a lot of people live into basically like logistical hubs for deliveries. And I just thought it was a really stark, dark, you know, vision of the future of the city that it's just, everything is just a warehouse, um, to be delivered, you know, to deliver goods to you as fast as possible, this sort of vision of last mile urbanism. Uh, and I just found it really upsetting. And, um, and that's how I started writing about it. Um, but it, of course, it's tied into these, these, um, these models. So a dark store is um, an empty storefront that's been converted to basically just like a, a warehouse, like um, it might be uh, in a strip mall. It might be actually like a, an old supermarket. It might be part of a supermarket. There's, it's kind of an elastic concept, but it's really like we're going to take something that used to be consumer-facing retail space and dedicate it to online order fulfillment. Ghost Kitchen is very similar in the sense that it's like uh, uh, something that presents itself as a, as a restaurant on a delivery platform, an ordering platform, but is really kind of um, stacked in, uh, in a commissary space alongside several other, you know, just little kitchenettes where they're pumping out, um, kind of generic, um, generic meals that are branded up with, with spicy names, like, um, pardon my French toasts and stuff like this. Um, 
these things are really tied into uh, the, the the gig economy and the platform logistics. Like they were they were on the up and up in in 2018, 2019. All the major pl- like delivery platforms had already invested hundreds of millions. I would I would say sort of globally, if not billions, um, to you know like DoorDash was experimenting with opening its own ghost kitchen where they would bring on their restaurant partners and have them rent space directly from DoorDash to do this um, direct delivery thing. And like I said, then it just really ramped up with the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, they got a massive pandemic subsidy where like, because people had no other choice, uh, but to use these kinds of, you know, because delivery workers were essential workers. And so they were able to be out there, you know, on the front lines, uh, delivering people's groceries and food and everything else. And so they got this massive pandemic subsidy. Plus, this is key. And this is something you talk about in the article uh, is that like real estate is a massive aspect of these uh, instant delivery, dark stores, ghost kitchens and stuff, because they need to have these kind of small warehouse spaces within the urban core, right? They, in order to have that, like, you know, not just same day delivery, but you know, same hour delivery, uh, they need to be really close to you, which means that they have to have, uh, these kind of nodes that are close to where people live, which tend to mean uh, having warehouses in places that may not be zoned uh, for warehouses, right? Because it's a residential area or commercial area. But thanks to the pandemic, a lot of these small businesses, you know, the small corner uh, bodegas and convenience stores and corner shops and other little uh, things that, you know, might fill these, uh, the, the, uh, these storefronts. A lot of them went out of business. They went under, uh, you know, they either, you know, a lot of them were already leasing. Uh, they weren't owners of their storefront. And so, you know, the landlords are happy to have somebody else come in and, 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 that benefited a lot of these uh, companies like GoPuff and so on, who were able to very quickly like move in, retrofit these uh, uh, storefronts into it, what looks like like if you see pictures or, or read reporting of how these storefronts look like, like they they look like kind of uh, supermarkets in miniature. Um, you know, they are like you know tightly packed to the brim with the the kind of you know, supermarket shelving, uh, you know, very cheap stuff that's just, you know, metal and plywood kind of thrown together, but, but not the big wide shelves that you need to get like a trolley, you know, a shopping cart or have multiple lanes of people. They're like really, really small. So you can get as many people in there as possible. I've heard reporting that like, you know, with some of these companies, when a new order comes in, like a klaxon goes off to alert like all the workers in the the little dark store that like a new order is dropped. So it's like get to business, filling this order, packing it as much as possible. You know, sometimes they've got walk-in freezers and walk-in coolers uh, for ice cream and beer and stuff like that. Um, You know, people are packing, they're moving as fast as they can in these really cramped spaces. And then, you know, packing that up, handing it off to a delivery rider, you might have like a stable of delivery riders on mopeds and bicycles and stuff, just kind of waiting out front, waiting to collect their next order so they can go. Uh, it, it's, it sounds like, you know, a very kind of frenzied 
uh, pace for a, a lot of these uh, stores. And, and like I was saying, you know, they, they are situated like right in the middle. Uh, at least ideally, they want to situate themselves right in the middle of like the downtown area or as close to like dent, high dense residential suburbs or apartment complexes as possible. Yeah. And that's complimented to, um, I think that's exactly right. And, and that was like a really vivid picture of the, the frenzied labor environment the frenzied working environment, which really kind of resonates with, I, I um, imagine from what I've read, what it's like to work in a, in an Amazon warehouse, but all that is also complimented as well by, uh, you know, malls that were anchored by department stores and they were really suffering during the pandemic, but also um, in the early years of the pandemic, but also just due to e-commerce competition. And so you start to see Macy's, uh, you know, going dark in, in its, uh, you know, some of its major outlets as in anchors of these suburban malls, malls, which are already designed, of course, for high, um, high traffic and parking and these kinds of suburban logistics as well. Um, and it poses a, um, a challenge for workers, right? Like, what do you do when you, when your store, you're working at a Macy's, maybe you specialize in menswear and all of a sudden the store is converting to a, a dark store just to fulfill online orders. And, uh, what are you going to, you're going to become a picker. So there's this kind of, um, de devaluing of a lot of specialized work that happens as well here where every, everyone kind of becomes a warehouse worker. And that was something that I picked up and tried to picked up on and tried to uh, thematize as well. Yeah, I think that, I think that's that's a really astute observation. Here is the the kind of general logistics uh, logisticization. <laughs> yeah. I think there will be a number of these uh, very awkward uh, ization uh, <laughs> suffixes that we chuck on some words during this episode, but. Yeah, no, this, this like, this turning everyone into a warehouse worker, turning everyone into a, uh, a part of the, of logistics of supply chains. I mean, like in a lot of ways, it's, uh, it harkens us back to some, some classic capitalism, you know, like there's a lot, there's a big rise right now in academia of like critical logistics studies. Uh, there is a lot of work on like supply chain capitalism and stuff like that. But, you know, being the inveterate Marxist that I am, when I read about this stuff, I'm like, this, this isn't new. If anything, this is like old, you know, it's like, what's, what's new, what's old is new again in the sense that, you know, Marx talks about how, you know, capitalism just presents itself as a mass accumulation immense accumulation of commodities, right? And that uh, capitalism is ultimately about the circulation of both capital and commodities, that capital is nothing but money in motion, uh, and that, you know, the circuits of capital really rely upon the movement of commodities. And I think it's interesting to see this like uh, kind of develop th this evolutionary development of capitalism in the 20th and 21st century from like, you know, the kind of real economy of production and manufacturing up to, you know, the, you know, then the big buzzword about, was about how like, you know, the, the, the quote unquote developed economies have become service based economies. We don't make anything anymore. We don't produce anything anymore. Um, and then increasingly what we see with some, with stuff like platform capitalism is about uh, the next step of that service economy is going back to a uh, logistics economy, right? Like there is people are doing a service, but that service is uh, actually not serving people in the sense that like, you know, 
being a, a waiter at a restaurant or giving massages or you know other of these kind of services that are human centric instead it's about serving commodities uh you your job in the logistics supply chain is actually to serve the commodity the mo the the the, the motion uh of that commodity which then is providing some kind of good to uh people down the line but like it's even more so uh, removing that labor, or at least uh, fr from the immediate kind of viewpoint of the consumer. Um, and this is something you talk about in your article, and I think it would actually be worth talking about, like get digging into this a little bit more right now, is this like the further alienation uh, of that labor from the end user of this the uh, of the commodity or of the service through multiple through means where it's like it's not now there's not like a, a server that you you know can tip or be rude to or be mean to or treat as you know someone beneath you it's like no like the server has been removed from that relationship completely now there is just a uh, a magic app that um, that that magically gives you uh, the goods that you have ordered online without ever having to ideally interact with a single person ever again. Uh, even with the you know delivery drivers, right? A lot of this is you know the kind of drop and go, you know, contactless delivery, uh, which the pandemic, of course, gave a good reason for. But I, I think you know your article really explains how uh, these these uh, platforms really took advantage of the pandemic as one of these classic never let a good crisis go to waste uh, in terms of r accelerating already existing kind of political economic trends, both in terms of the, the evolution or transformation of the nature of work, but also uh, the kind of ongoing VC trends towards hyperscale and hyper growth. Yeah, uh, the, you know, like the 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 names are telling, right? Like it's it's you know going dark, the dark uh, store going dark. Um, what that means is is t is taking this um, this labor regime and putting it behind closed doors. Um, and I think that that's that's really important. I, I build on the work of a sociologist named David Hill, who talks about the injuries of platform logistics, um, and uh, by injuries he means. Um, not like physical injuries, but like the, uh, I think he speaks of moral uh, and ethical injuries. And one of these is like when the labor becomes more and more invisible, it really makes it difficult for, for consumers to act responsibly because we have, we're removed and alienated more and more from that, as you put it, Jason, that commodity chain, the, the circuits, uh, not only of production, but of distribution um, and making it that magic app where it is, it feels like it's the push of the button is really key to, um, uh, you know, I think, I don't remember if I used this term or if he used it first, but this idea of a logistical fetish fetishization, right. Um, where it's the logistics, it's a service, but it's also, these platforms are competing on the speed, uh, uh, that last mile delivery. Um, so there's a fetishization, both in the sense that like, you know, the magic of the item appearing at your door presenting itself as, as though it were pre-made, but also like fetishizing, um, like we're, we're becoming obsessed with, with this, the speed of delivery, like, like anyone needs their, you know, anything delivered within 15 or 20 minutes. The other thing I wanted to add is, and I, I read about this in the book, um, is, Part of my earlier research was working as a gig worker for a company that was 
it's still around. It's called Caviar. I think it's now owned by DoorDash. Um, so I got to experience that um, as as a gig worker. Uh, that feeling of just being a cog in a delivery machine. I would deliver to high-rise apartment buildings um, and uh, be like intensely scrutinized by the doorman or something, um, and uh, you know have to wait for them to print out a security tag. Sometimes I'd have to take service elevators when I'm delivering food to high- to people who lived in in high-rises. And it became really apparent doing the work um, that how much of the the job was just based around like getting it, getting in and getting out um, and how there are all these pediments in the environment to gig workers working that speed. And, you know, when you're, when you're being paid piece rate as a gig worker, you want to get as many orders in as you can per hour. Um, and all these things start to accumulate as obstacles to you. At the same time that, you know, you might have to, it might take you 15 minutes to get up to that top floor of the high rise. And then the, the customer asks you to just leave it at their doorstep outside their apartment door. So all that, all that kind of melds together in my experience, but it's, um, I think that's, that's exactly right. Would we be able to, I think, kind of hone in also on you know, a little bit on this discussion of how the logistics are becoming, or, you know, how they're one of the, one of the, th- themes you hone in on as converging on into something that's new, but the two threads, the, the existence of platforms and the prevalence of, of logistics, um, you know, meeting in the middle uh, and, and, and manifesting in these dark stores, on, in retail spaces, and also for, de- for food delivery. At what point do you, in your sense of Amazon as the, you know, the, the, the platonic ideal here and Amazon's march towards, you know, a hegemonic market presence, uh, did things open up or shift uh, or, or create maybe even infrastructure channels for other firms to start coming in and pursuing new organizations and, and, and new sort of um, market practices or new, you know, new, pr- uh, new goods and services that get us start or start getting us towards platforms changing urban landscapes. Yeah, I mean, I think for a long time, Amazon was considered like, yeah, the market hegemon, this behemoth that had invested, you know, that Amazon was was so prescient uh, in the early 2000s to be investing in its infrastructure. And like, you know, you read business books and Amazon is present, presented as like, you know, Bezos is a genius. Uh, he knew well ahead of the curve that um, it was good to lose money because it would pay off in the long run, blah, blah, blah. Come down the line to the mid-aughts and Amazon feels like it's you can't even compete with it. And I think that the 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 opening that dark stores and ghost kitchens represented to these smaller upstart companies was exactly this. Like we can beat Amazon because we can get into these smaller spaces that are, you know, it's not at the same scale as an Amazon distribution center, but we're much closer to the consumer's doorstep. And it's it, it's that little like that little trick that I think allows that opens up this space where people start to feel like they're going to be able to compete with, I think one um, business writer puts it, to compete with the Amazons of the world. And it's kind of, there's kind of this irony there because there is only one Amazon. But I think that's exactly right. And it's, um, Ed, you were, you were talking about the, um, the, the convergence aspect of this, right? Part of it too uh, is this idea of uh, the, these companies that are operating dark stores and ghost kitchens, or at least the the intermediaries who are um, selling their expertise on how a business might reconfigure their store to be a dark store, um, uh, they're selling it on this on this vision of space that really talks about 
physical spaces in the same way that tech companies talk about software. There's this inherent reconfigurability of space, uh, the the sort of melding of like data analytics in physical spaces that happens in warehouses, but like making that more ubiquitous, you know, sort of doing Amazon on a smaller scale and therefore finding a way to compete with Amazon a little bit on this last mile. Yeah, in fact, in your article, you have a really great example of, of this kind of logic of like, you know, the, the logistical frontier, the programmability of space, uh, you know, all of the, all of these kind of logics uh, and concepts taken to a, a really comical extreme in this startup that you, that's called Reef Technology. Uh, in fact, I'm just going to read uh, the paragraph from from your your uh, your article about reef because it's one I'd never heard of uh, until coming until reading about it in your article. It's one uh, as as you'll see why uh, Ed and I definitely should have known about. Um, so you're right. Consider Reef Technology, one of the many startups that benefited from the 2020 venture capital boom. A self-styled neighborhood logistics provider steeped in Silicon Valley rhetoric, Reef's executives uh, liken their product to Apple. Quote, Apple uses connectivity as a platform. We use proximity as a platform. We allow third-party applications to stand on this proximity platform and get closer to consumers. What they mean by proximity platform, however, is a parking lot of which Reef controls more than 10,000 after having acquired the two largest parking parking operators in North America with capital from SoftBank's Vision Fund and Dubai's Sovereign Wealth Fund. The company's ambitions to create, quote unquote, the next phase of a neighborhood match its potentially vast physical footprint of empty blacktop through a partnership with Bond, a quote-unquote last-mile logistics startup that manufactures quote-unquote nano warehouses, Reef is currently building out a network of ghost kitchens and local logistics and mobility hubs on hundreds of parking lots across dozens of U.S. cities. In fact, Reef services are being rolled out so fast that the company has been forced to shutter several of its locations for failure to acquire the requisite permits. While the structures housing Reef's logistics hub and micro kitchen may today look like ordinary trailers, executives insist that they are only prototypes, quote, a proof of concept for other sorts of applications that might make sense in some later future time. The Reef is really fascinating. I first stumbled on them in 2020 around the time that they started to get some attention because the early ghost kitchens were experimenting with how much you could steal some other restaurants menu and so you had some of the early ghost kitchens you had people uh, thinking they were ordering from uh michelin star restaurant or thinking they were ordering from their favorite uh, local joint and it was actually just like a replicant of it and that start spurred uh, some investigation into like oh someone's buying up parking lots and putting like these trailers in the middle of them that you can't access uh, that are just like funneling, throwing out food. And there's four or five different restaurants. Um, Of course, SoftBank is backed, backed into it, but that I think also, this is also an interesting thing. I, I would, I think I would love to talk about also because they keep talking about, and a lot of these places do talk about the vision that they have, the dream that they have of, of creating new space. But 
you know, from what we've seen each time one of these giants or one of these like wealth, you know, capitalized startups grabs a parcel of land, they don't actually do anything with it except like trade it as a financial asset eventually, or like build too much on it and shutter it eventually, or try to use it as a hub um, that no, no one in the public can access. So, I mean, like, I think one thing I'd be, or maybe a more concrete question is like, you know, the vision of space that they're talking about, what, what are they actually saying when they say space? They're not imagining public space and they're not imagining like a place where people can actually, you know, move through and live. And if they're just, they're imagining like another node or another uh, terrain for finance and, and, you know, startups. I I do think there, there is like, you know, just, zooming out and thinking like, what, what do they mean by space? I think that in this discourse, space is empty. Um, in, in terms of like how you can populate it with things, it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, in terms of like, they're cognizing this, you know, this, this company purchases the largest, the two largest parking lot operators, which gives them access to blank space. And it's and it, like, what is more blank space in the real world than a, than a parking lot. Right. Um, I think that that is part of the attraction is like, okay, this is like, you know, tabula rasa, this is, you know, Terra Nova, we can just go in and and do build whatever we need to, to get the kinds of efficiency that we uh, are going to try to sell to people. Another, another example that I bring up in the paper is cloud kitchens, which is owned by a former Uber CEO or not owned. uh, He's, he's running it and he's invested his personal money in it. Cloud kitchens by a former Uber CEO, Travis Kalanick. Um, and they're buying up a ton of old, like industrial buildings. And I think it's a similar vision, uh, you know, probably a little bit more, you know, staying power, just physically speaking, architecturally speaking. Um, and those are, are certainly thought of as, as assets on the accounting book. And I'm sure there's a lot of very clever accounting that's going on in terms of taking Kalanick's personal money alongside some sovereign wealth fund, uh, injection, Goldman Sachs, maybe, Taking that, getting these uh, these warehouse spaces in uh, in in close to downtown, and leveraging leveraging them, figuring out ways to spin that up into more capital to uh, to invest. And so, a lot, I think a lot of it is in part a real estate shell game that like funnels into the 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 tech move to the extent that tech is actually operative here. Yeah, I mean, they 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 paved paradise and 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 put up nano warehouses that are purely uh, existing in in the promotional marketing and speculative visions of the most insane people. We've talked a lot about and, and kind of provided a really good sense of the sheer amount of capital uh, that has been injected into urban space and urban logistics for the last, you know, 15 years, really, with the which is the beginning of kind of platform capitalism, uh, you know, really starting in like 2008. But the last couple years in particular have been, you know, a real, a, a real boom time for it because of the pandemic and all that. And so all of this like injection of capital into urban space in really material ways, right? It's like, you know, uh, 
you were talking about, you know, Cloud Kitchen, Travis Kalanick's kind of venture, uh, you know, is buying up warehouses in, in different cities. So they're actually buying, you know, they're entering into buying up real estate, uh, you know, these kind of instant delivery uh, platforms like GoPuff and and so on have you know moved into you know they're not buying these warehouses but they moved into shop fronts uh, that could otherwise be house some other building maybe a a local store or something like that that actually services the neighborhood um, but and you know then you've got companies like Reef uh, kind of taking parking lots as their uh, as where they're going to move into you know and and noticeably though of course that uh, Reef bought up two of the largest parking lot operators but that that doesn't mean that they own these parking lots they just they they uh, have the 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 rights to operate uh, the parking lots, which we can get into that uh, some other time. The like really uh, uh, complex uh, ownership and operation uh, uh, kind of relationship of something like a parking lot, um, which is you know very very strange to think about the like the the way that all of these different rights uh, and and rights over ownership, rights over operation, rights over access, rights over revenue have all been like like cleaved and disentangled from each other, kind of broken up, uh, sold off uh, as, as, you know, kind of separate things. But at any rate, there's a lot, in other words, you know, and, and the and venture capitalists are, are, are behind this just as much as, you know, vision fund and sovereign wealth funds are as well. You know, it's, it's the reason why, GoPuff blew up so fast is because of venture capital, right? Like, you know, I, I won't get into the whole history, but the Bloomberg article that we'll link in the episode description is a really nice kind of history of instant delivery going back to like the the late 90s dream of the startup called Cosmo, uh, which was the uh, a kind of a, uh, a product and victim of the first dot-com bubble um, bursting. Uh, but it was also something that Amazon, in addition to other companies, had invested a lot of money into this company called Cosmo, which really essentially had the same exact dream of something like GoPuff, but this was before the gig economy was big. And so they were actually going to try to like buy real estate, hire employees, char- like, like pay people really good wages, have like this, like, like, you know, really, uh, you know, looking back on it from today's landscape, just how, how socialist of those capitalists to think that they could like hire employees, buy their warehouses, like actually have all this capital investment. Um, and, and so that, that went under, uh, and you know, the GoPuff and, and the kind of new rise of instant delivery, you know, was kind of premised on this idea. Now we have finally figured out how this business model works because of two main innovations, uh, smartphones. So now there's an app, uh, and gig economy. Now you don't have employees, you have contractors, right? Like, and so that was really the, uh, a kind of the reason why a lot of this blew up so fast. And then of course the venture capitalists stepping in and, and taking something like a kind of, uh, a really bootstrapping startup like GoPuff, which as, as you mentioned, Aaron, you know, started in Philly, kind of expanded themselves to like Boston and New York, like on their own, uh, with, you know, with these two college students who were the founder, uh, founders of the company. And then it was only, 
wants some intern at some major venture capital firm uh, like knew about this about GoPuff because they used it when they were in college told some uh you know uh LPs at the at the venture capital firm about it and that was when the millions and hundreds of millions started flowing into this uh into GoPuff and into other competitors and with the idea of what they need to do is they need to grow right within very quickly, uh, I'll just read a little bit from the Bloomberg uh, business piece. Um, in 2014, Amazon did a trial of a new service called Prime Now, promising a range of household goods and food at your doorstep in one to two hours. Once again, Silicon Valley was convinced it could fulfill every impulse with the tap of a button. As the saying goes, history is rhyming, says the uh, founder of Cosmo, who watched it all play out from afar, you know, because his, his company had gone over like 10 years, or gone, gone under like 10 years earlier. GoPuff also got swept up in the wave, raising more than $3 billion from Fidelity Investments, Acel, and as ever, SoftBank, which in the classic fashion of its founder, Masayoshi Son, was also backing DoorDash and playing both sides of the quick commerce market. Investors had a simple command for GoPuff grow. Uh, and so by 2021, they had expanded to roughly 550 warehouses, opening half of them in that in the year 2021 alone. Um, they hired dozens of seasoned Amazon executives, uh, you know, people who are supposed to know how to run these kinds of businesses, um, you know, giving them these massive sign-on bonuses. Uh, and, and, you know, and with that, they started rapidly expanding outside of the college college market, you know, where they were really focusing on selling, you know, beer and snacks and cigarettes and, you know, party materials, in other words, um, and start expanding to groceries, family essentials, baby food, diapers, cosmetics, stuff like that, right? And so, like, they started pumping money into the, you know, and, you know, GoPuff started getting these massive cash infusions, as did all these other uh, competitors, from venture capital, it was like, this is the only way, you know, in their mind, this is the only place to put money in the pandemic is in these companies. And so just as quickly as, you know, they, they grow, you know, in 2021, 2022 rolls around and suddenly, uh, GoPuff just as a kind of, a. uh, a representative of this entire market, you know, January 2022 rolls around, the company has to stop acquiring other companies, which it was doing at a rapid clip. It was, it was acquiring, you know, companies in Europe, uh, in the U S, you know, as ways of, of kind of quickly uh, taking over other markets through acquisition. Um, it had to negotiate a $600 million cash infusion from investors to help them weather the storm of the, the post pandemic bust. Uh, even though just a year earlier, they had opened, uh, over 200 warehouses and all of that. Um, and, and, you know, the majority of, of course, that cash infusion, uh, came through uh, notably a convertible note. So an arrangement that unlike, you know, a traditional venture capital round wouldn't require GoPuff to reprice its, uh, its highly valued stock. And so all this kind of financial engineering takes hold. Um, and then eventually, you know, GoPuff is having to do other things uh, like, you know, 
Uh, whereas pre in the you know last year they had doubled their headcount, you know not just hiring massive amount of investors but also employing eighteen thousand couriers or quote unquote employing contracting with eighteen thousand and couriers but paying them an hourly wage for shifts plus a fat fee, a flat fee for each bag they delivered. Um, but you know what happens now you know this year is that. If you you know, see a, a GoPuff warehouse in a in a city, chances are there's just a massive amount of couriers kind of idling their cars, hanging around on their bikes and their mopeds. There's no deliveries, no work to do. Uh, I'm quoting now from the Bloomberg piece. Inside the warehouses, frontline employees, or inside the dark stores, frontline employees describe sprawling chaos with primitive computer systems, slow order volume, and waves of inventory from suppliers that didn't correspond to actual demand. Waste was rampant. Uh, mountains of moldering fruit and baked goods had to be chucked. One Amazon at transplant who, like dozens of others, lasted less than a year, says workers were told to put items in black bags so no one could see the prodig uh, prodigious waste uh, in the dumpsters uh, near the warehouses. Um, so, you know... These companies just start going under. They start collapsing. And, and you know, mere days before we started recording this uh, episode, Deliveroo announced it was going into voluntary administration uh, in, in Australia, which means that, you know, the, the, the market was so bad for Deliveroo. You know, another one of these, you know, food delivery and grocery delivery apps uh, that for a long time had a major market share in Australia. It's a UK based, you know, uh, uh, but had a major market share in Australia, started losing that market share to competitors like Uber Eats, uh, DoorDash and Minulog. Minulog's a sit, uh, headquartered in Sydney. Uh, and you know, but uh, Deliveroo had to enter voluntary administration and just did so very suddenly. Uh, it like literally just one day sent an email to the 15,000 riders uh, who were signed up for the platform and 12,000 restaurants who uh, were partnered with the platform, just telling them, uh, we don't exist anymore. And if we owe you money, here's the legal process you have to go through as a creditor, uh, in order to claim whatever money, uh, that you claim, that you say we owe you. These company, I think this is, this is really instructive here. And DoorDash had done something, had done similar things in the German market a couple years ago, uh, the Netherlands and Spain earlier this year. Notably as well, I think for us, uh, Aaron, you know, as academics who study the kind of geographies, uh, and political economy of platform urbanism and platform capitalism, Deliveroo was a, a very common case study, uh, for a lot of academics because it was, you know, this very large, uh, you know, UK-based platform. You know, a number of uh, uh, I, I know of a number of academics who've done similar stuff as you did with Caviar in terms of like, you know, writing for Deliveroo or uh, interviewing Deliveroo drivers. In fact, I I have an article co-authored with a friend uh, and sociologist in Scotland named Karen Gregory, where uh, we have an article that is based on an extensive number of interviews that Karen did with Deliveroo riders, and so. 
it's it's you know interesting to see a company like Deliveroo or GoPuff or any of these companies that were kind of held up as the paragons, as representatives of a a sector of platform capitalism, platform logistics, and so on, suddenly and quickly just go under, just go into like in Deliveroo's kit, you know, GoPuff is kind of, uh, you know, going down with a fight in large part because they have hundreds of millions of dollars of cash that is sustaining them as they kind of uh, flame out. Deliver, on the other hand, just literally overnight saying we uh, no longer exist as a, as a company in Australia. I bring all this up, you know, yes, to, to point out the kind of, the rapid rise and the rapid fall, but also because I want to talk about the, the a, a concept that I think is really crucial here is the aftermath, right? Like when we talk about all these massive cash cash injections, uh, these ra- the rapid rise, you know, the 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 sheer labor force that has they've got signed up, all the other partners, the restaurants and grocery stores and so on that they've got uh part you know signed up to the platform, the the dark stores and ghost kitchens and parking lots they've invested in. Like these companies might just go away all of a sudden, but the consequences of their existence don't just go away with them. Like I'm reminded of the the Joan Robinson quote, you know, who is a, a Keynesian economist who said the the only thing worse than being exploited under capitalism is not being exploited under capitalism, right? And I, I think there's something here about like, you know, as critics, I know we've we've cheered on the you know that the, the platforms that these platforms need to be abolished. They need to be regulated. They need to be shrunk. They need to be tamed. Um, and yet, it's also so clear how they have created successfully their monopoly strategy of becoming of uh, abolishing all their other competitors taking over and dominating the market and in and in there and in different ways making both us and other uh you know actors in the economy like restaurants uh become so reliant and so dependent on these platforms that the only thing worse than being uh, exploited by the platform is not being exploited by the platform. Is there just sudden, uh, you know, evaporation and with nothing, nothing left in their wake except the aftermath, uh, the aftermath of a urban core that has been hollowed out by dark stores and ghost kitchens that no longer exist. Uh, you know, the aftermath of tens of thousands of workers who uh, relied, however precarious uh, and insecure, on these platforms to make some kind of money. Uh, the reliance on consumers, uh, who every other choice uh, for getting goods, uh, getting food, getting groceries, um, has, you know, uh, they, they have organized their lives around using the platform, and now it doesn't exist. You know, I think uh, uh, I, I don't think there's been a lot of attention. I think your article is actually one of the the first I've seen to seriously consider like these scenarios. But I think there's a lot more space and need for this kind of critical analysis of what I, I'm calling the aftermath of of platform capitalism, of platform logistics. I think this that your point about dependencies is really spot on, Jathan. I think these platforms through various incentives, both to consumers and to workers, have deliberately cultivated 
dependencies in ways that that make um, the workforces reliant on them. And it's a reminder of uh, it's a reminder to zoom out and think about the structural like whole that these that this part time for some people and full time um, income was uh, was filling um, in the in the broader economy. Right. Like it's not a surprise that when unemployment rates spike um, or inflation goes up, that um, hundreds of thousands of people uh, start driving for Uber or Lyft. Um, it's it's not a coincidence, right? There's a part of, I think, part of the, not just the investors' excitement, but even politicians' excitement going back to the 2010s about these platforms was that they are they are filling a gap. We can we can you know in in the in an Uber driver's day job we can keep suppressing their wage. We can keep not bringing it up to the cost of living because they can always supplement by renting out their apartment on Airbnb. And that that aspect to it I think is really really important. And it, it and it should you know as these flimsy uh, logistical companies um, collapse under their own weight. And I kind of ta- I talk about this at the end of the article. Like there's like this conflicted nature to the, all this logistical speculation. Like they're building out, like not, they're building out trailers on parking lots. Like that's not very durable. Um, it's not going to last very long. It's very, very flimsy. Um, so as, as these things start to collapse, I think it should, should prompt us to reflect on the bigger policy questions that, you know, uh, we, we may, um, have wanted to think a lot about how we might regulate these companies into, and to mitigate the precarity that their workforces face. But at the same time, it, to me at least, it's been a stark reminder that um, the questions are bigger than just the gig, the gig workforce. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a, a there, there's a very strange kind of dual sided problem with object permanence that I think a lot of these a lot of the management consultants and trend forecasters and venture capitalists have. Like you, you have a. a, a uh, a quote in your your you I'm going to quote from your article here. You have a stat that I found really interesting, where you say the pandemic has clearly fast tracked their ascendancy. Talking about dark stores and ghost kitchens, industry analysts predict that both models will become permanent fixtures of the post pandemic economic landscape. Consulting firm Accenture, for example, forecasts that by 2023, up to 70% of online transactions will be fulfilled at a local dark store or other micro-fulfillment facility. Accenture made that prediction in, in, in 2020 uh, that near a mere th- you know, <laughs> three years later, um, 70% of our online transactions would be uh, you know, thanks to a dark store or where, nano warehouse or micro-fulfillment or whatever. Like, there's this a strange... like like. These these management consultants, these trend forecasters, like as soon as they see VC money flowing into something, in their mind that is a a sign of permanence, right? Well, this thing must be permanent. It must be a a permanent fixture of the landscape now, uh, and it's going to grow uh, in its permanence. We're all going to be getting eating from ghost kitchens and shopping from dark stores, right? And like at the same time, they have a. a and a problem with object impermanence where as soon as they hear any uh, critical analysis saying otherwise, they immediately forget it. Right. Uh, and, and so it leads to these, 
patently absurd predictions that, I mean, were absurd when they were made, but also quite absurd how quickly they were proven to be wrong, right? And then we're, what we're left with is, again, like, you know, people, you know, the consulting firms like Accenture or McKinsey being like, you know, who could have ever foreseen uh, this happening? Who could have ever foreseen the uh, the instant demise of instant delivery? Uh, who could have ever foreseen a company as, uh, you know, cash rich as Deliveroo going into sudden uh, administration? Uh, you know, when the reality is, is that it was always very clear that the pandemic was this like artificial booster for the stock prices and valuations of these companies uh, that, you know, that fate, you know, and it's, you know, it's also the, you know, Facebook, right? Shedding like 40% of its market cap, uh, uh, you know, in, you know, in the, the last six months or whatever, Amazon, right? Like we started the episode kind of going through all the layoffs that are happening by big tech and small tech, um, alike. And it, it's a lot of this was, uh, I, I think a lot of what we're seeing now is a downturn is in reality just a correction for um, a like a massive inflationary you know pandemic bubble uh, that everybody thought was just going to last forever uh, and and therefore further contributes to these dependencies, right? Like they have you know more money means uh, more ability to capture more market to suppress and acquire more competitors uh, to completely restructure the uh, the conditions and operations of a market not just to take it over but to transform it uh, and it, it's it's really wild to, to see the amount of money that was seemingly just laying around uh, ready to be you know thrown into all of these ventures uh, and so quickly uh, evaporate with with nothing right like you know for companies to have you know venture capitalist firms uh, to have to write off hundreds of millions of dollars in investment and have nothing to show for it except for the destruction of uh, urban cores and entire sectors of services that people rely upon well, the, the, just to complicate that um, a little bit is I think that part of, part of what's going on as well is if companies like Amazon uh, and Deliveroo and, you know, all the others, um, specifically for the retail sector uh, and, and a little bit the restaurant industry as well. But if, um, if these companies were like thought, like if Amazon was thought, thought to be like unique in its ability to do what Amazon does, and there's more and more uh, legacy companies that are coming around and doing exactly what Amazon does, whether it's Target or Walmart, but at having the added bonus of like actually having a physical footprint of Targets and Walmarts, I think that there's kind of a, it's not just money evaporating. I, th I also think there's a rebalancing going on where the legacy companies have, um, have just been like, okay, we, we can, we can compete with you. We'll invest in tech. And that, and that has, you know, to, you know, just based on the projections around holiday spending this year, like holiday, holiday spending is projected to grow. I think it's just the distribution of where people are, are buying, how they're buying that's changing a little bit. So, so it is also, it's gratifying to see the thing that was supposed to be special about tech actually just kind of like being incorporated into every sector. Like people had, like for some forecasters had been saying for a long time, and maybe, um, uh, there's this evening, evening out 
the the aftermath concept I think is really fascinating because uh, it you know uh, we were talking about this before we started recording, but thinking about uh, older business models and how the you know the old is 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 new again. Um, things like fran- franchises, uh, you know, fast food franchising as a business model, supermarkets, which I talk about in the paper, supermarkets divesting from um, from inner cities to to become anchors and suburban shopping districts. Uh, we, that that has a very particular aftermath and it's called a food desert, right? Um, so I think that's something really, really important um, to think infrastructurally around services that are, that in the United States and most capitalist countries are provided by market, by the market, thinking about those things as a kind of infrastructure that's, that's contingent on market forces. And, and that being a, a really important space for policy or regulatory intervention, which is to say, like, we can't just let this be like something like access to quality food be at the whims of a um, of a supermarket that's going to up and leave uh, the inner city or delivery, which is just going to dissolve. We can't just let you said fifteen thousand workers um, lose access to that income. So you know, I think that that's a really important thing to think with this aftermath. Absolutely, yeah. You have a you have a really great point about this in your article that I'll just read here. You put you, you put it very well, where you say. Given platforms empirically demonstrable penchant for information asymmetries and discriminatory pricing, it is not difficult to foresee the dark market's figurative doors not being equally open to all. For those living in physically, racially, and economically isolated neighborhoods, will going dark lead to new forms of predatory inclusion with excessive fees tacked on for those who cannot afford subscriptions? Or will efficiency maximizing site selection decisions reproduce historical patterns of exclusion for low-income racial minorities, uh, urban communities. And I think the answer to both of those is, is obviously yes. And also, uh, when the, the dark store's doors close altogether, not just closing to some, but when they just, when they shudder, uh, that is also the, the, the removal of an option, right? A predatory, uh, in, uh option, a, a type of predatory inclusion, and it's it, it's also it's in addition to the the kind of you know uh, racial and socioeconomic geographies uh, and segregation happening here. One of the things I saw continually during the pandemic was people, uh, the companies themselves, but also some consumers being like, uh, you know, if if you are against platform uh, logistics or platform delivery apps, then you are against uh, providing the uh, disabled community with access to these goods, right? Um, in other words, right, like this is a, 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 a service that, you know, serves the the disabled community it's a it's an ability affirming or ability enhancing uh platform and in a lot of ways that's correct uh that it that you know people who couldn't leave the home for some for any reason now had access to groceries and food and other things um that they could order on an app without having to rely on you know friends or family or hiring somebody to do it for them uh so in that in that way that's correct it did actually provide a, an inclusive 
uh, or further inclusion of these people into a necessary service, but it did so in a very predatory way. And it did so in a way that was also very relied upon exploitation and uh, perhaps all, uh, you know, at, at the you know, very worst is it did so in a way that I think was very uh, uh, cynical. Uh, it did so in a way that that was never the intention. That was never the purpose was to provide a food desert with uh, access to uh, uh, you know, additional types of produce or so and, and other food to provide um, disabled people with access to groceries and, and food delivery. Like that was never the, imper the purpose of these things. That was always, if ever, only a, uh, an unintended benefit. Uh, we hear a lot about unintended consequences of these technologies. Well, here's an unintended benefit that they then took up and used as a shield uh, to justify their existence and their business practices and their uh, infinite growth and expansion. And then at the same time, when they go away, when the companies, because they have fundamentally unsustainable business models collapse, those people are once again left in the lurch uh, and, and, you know, left uh, uh uh, with with no with no other option, and perhaps even worse, so they were left with something. They became dependent upon it. Maybe they reorganized their lives in part on that dependence, and then it goes away, leaving them worse off than they were before. One thing I've been curious about, and asking people when they when they come in and talk about how these corporations and these startups have really restructured the way that people live, that workers work, that money you know or capital is even moved by disciplining it too, is you know. Do these changes seem permanent or maybe not like forever, but changes that as they develop are going to require progressively larger interventions to uproot? Because it feels like even if we did, for example, get rid of or figure out solutions to, uh, you know, uh, food deserts or solutions to mobility issues uh, that in one way or another, they're going to like respond to or build on top of the infrastructure that these firms have built out instead of, imagining really divergent alternatives that weren't influenced by or informed by, you know, like the past, the zero interest rate policy building out like a very specific form of fulfillment, a very specific form of like, you know, just in time uh, infrastructures in a very specific form of like misclassification of these workers and having that workforce on, on you know, ready to, to spring at a moment's notice. You know, the thing I keep coming back to is like, I don't, maybe it's kind of just like naive or overly optimistic, but you know, the discourse used to be sharing like, yeah, <laughs> uh, I know that that was yeah. also cynical, but like there is like the, the technological affordances of like actually connecting people who have resources um, mm -hmm. is really impressive and powerful. Um, platforms completely co-opted that. Right. But like mm -hmm. that potential is always there. That's, that's the like, um, What's the right way to put it? Like the underutilized commons, right? Like it's, it's, it's there. And I think that there are ways and maybe it's platform cooperatives. Maybe it's simply, um, I don't know, not nonprofit, like companies like signal, which are governed, um, as a nonprofit, like these kinds of new tech organizational forms coming, coming to the fore and, um, and building out the infrastructure that, that in a way that isn't just vaporware or, you know, just again, you know, like trailers in a parking lot. How radical would it be that something that is clearly uh, used and relied upon as like a public utility 
What if it were actually public? I mean, that, that, yeah. that's some crazy. I know it's crazy. Hey, hey don't shoot me, okay? But, but uh, <laughs> like, you know, if anything, I think some of these com- uh, companies, these platforms should be seen as not as a, uh, a, a, a prototype for how to run the service, but rather as a, a proof of the need for yep. some kind of service like this, right? Yep. And then from there, take that proof of a need, proof of a market, right? If we're going to think about it as investors. Um, and a lot of times, uh, unfortunately, a lot of local governments do actually talk about them, about like their customers that they're serving, which is the, the constituency and citizens. And so they already use marketized language. So let's, let's lean on that, right? There's obviously proof of a market here um, for these kinds of services. Uh, and so why not? take that and take the rather than take the lesson from the uh, sudden demise and collapse of uh, these platforms as uh, well this could just you know it could never happen but instead take that as a it could never happen through this business model Um, but like there's there's obviously proof of a need here there's proof of a market so why not have some kind of public alternative that is like you know that that could then have sustainability, nonprofit, all of this kind of built into it. Because I think uh, you're right to point out the kind of nonprofit aspect. Because I think a lot of what really dooms these companies is the venture capitalists uh, who give them a lot of money with the kind of monkey paw curse of you have a ton of money, and with this money you must turn it into ten times as much money. Uh, if you want to exist or, you know, if you want to make Masayoshi son happy <laughs> if, or, or so you can help Masayoshi son service the debt to soften. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. rest, rest in peace would want to, you know, shout out, um, folks who've been doing work on like, you know, like Niels van, van Dorn, um, and, uh, the, folks uh, at uh, the Oxford Internet Institute um, who've been thinking about um, immigrant communities who work, who are gig workers and like the, the, the more nuanced uh, approaches that are needed, acknowledging like what we've been talking about, acknowledging um, these dependencies that it just, we can't just, uh, you know, do away with these companies. There are whole entire communities that have come to depend on them. What do we do? Um, And I think that some of that work is really uh, important. I think that's also really real. I mean, there, there are communities who rely on them you know, as workers because they're precarious, and there are also communities who rely on them because there just isn't a way for them, you know, uh, to maybe get transit reliably where they are, or to to get you know food delivered to them if they're you know compromised, right, or if they have mobility issues. Like there are real needs, and I think that's also one of the things we go, we've we you know maybe not back and forth on, but talking about in a way uh, about how. And, and as you hit on earlier, like it is impressive in, in, in a sense, the scale and the ability of these technologies and the, and the potential of them to organize resources or to be used in feedback mechanisms that maybe aren't exactly strictly connected to a market because they're operating like really illogical ways or in ways that have been shown time and time again to not ar- arrive at the profits, even if they do get like, you know, dominant market share um, and, and figuring out ways to you know, how, how can we provide work for or how we can pr- provide resources for people who need both of those things without plugging them into this, 
machine that uses them insofar as it's just trying to pursue, uh, you know, uh, a market outcome that isn't even going to leave it better off. And will also, as an additive thing, waste just like a lot of capital um, that might have been, you know, put elsewhere or seized and, and, and allocated to some other thing. Yeah, if they just, all the capital that just disappeared over the past six months or whatever, if they just, you know, more than enough money to 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 pay living wages, like well and beyond enough money to pay people living wages. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. I think about that figure you had in the piece about how, um, if, you know, you know, basis had gained $90.1 billion and all of that was more than enough to give a six figure bonus to every single worker and still have as much money as before in the, in the pandemic. And it's also not like, you know, that, that money was being allocated to, uh, to anything else other than his own personal wealth. Right. I mean, it's, 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 it's an end to like ensure he has control and it's an end to or, or control of the company. And then an end in, in that, like, you know, higher on the Forbes list, but that money could have actually been used in other places. And it might as well have been because it's like, he's not him and other people are not getting punished for pouring capital into these wasteful, uh, enterprises in the sense that like they're not you know they're not getting the returns and they're still getting capital to do it again with another place you know Kalanick is a really prime example of this I mean with the Saudi with Saudi money was at Uber and then with Saudi money he's at Cloud Kitchens you know and I'm sure with Saudi money he'll do the next thing um, but but it's not like there's an end to uh, people, sovereign wealth funds, allocators uh, who are, are going to burn it. I mean, maybe now that interest rates, you know, have have been hiked, and, and, and investors are uh, getting more hungry for shorter returns or more consistent and reliable returns. But still, I mean, that was like a decade and a half. That's just, you know, what do we have to show for it, really? I I, I was when I saw that I I you know the the Bezos figure right that you know could give every worker a six digit, a six figure bonus and still be as rich after the pandemic. Like when I saw that, I was also thinking like, you know, the, the one thing that we've talked about on TMK, uh, especially in regards to like the web three and crypto economy is the way in which we see a lot of what I call VC Keynesianism happening where like the only way out of a crisis is through the crisis right and so like you know they're trying to like we you know this is why you see vc firms like andreessen horowitz every single time there's a downfall in the crypto economy they create a new like 400 million dollar crypto fund right this is also why you see like you know GoPuff is about to, you know, uh, is facing tough times. And so they raise another $600 million, right? To, to help them weather the storm. Like, you know, VCs have a real sunk cost fallacy that they are continually, uh, uh fall prey to, uh, while also, I think, having this kind of idea of themselves as, uh, you know, as, as, uh, Ed is, is, is fond and rightfully so to call them, right? The central planners of the economy, right? Like we have central planners and they're venture capitalists, uh, and, and, you know, these big, uh, uh, investment funds and asset managers and, and as central, uh, planners, I think they adhere to Keynesianism in the sense of, yeah, like the only way to get yourself out of a depression is by spending, right? You spend your way out of a depressed economy. Um, the only 
only problem is, is that they are spending on all the stupidest shit that is not going to actually produce anything for the real economy, right? It's all fictitious. It's all speculative. It's all uh, financial engineering and, 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 and gambling. It's a lot of gambling. And when I saw the Bezos thing, I was like, Man, if Bezos had half a brain, like he he doesn't need that extra, you know, uh, however, you know, tens of billions of dollars he got from the pandemic bubble. He's he's not going to spend it on anything. He doesn't need it on anything. If he had half a brain, he should have given that six digit bonus to every uh, Amazon uh, employee. Not only would he have bought himself uh, a, a seat in history as like the most altruistic man to ever exist, he would also uh, heat up the economy so much. You give a six, you give a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred fifty thousand dollars to people making minimum to the tens of thousands of people making minimum wage in his warehouses. They're going to go out and everything we know from economics and stimulus is, is that when rich people get money, they sit on it. When uh, poor and middle class people get money, they spend it. Uh, and where are they going to spend that? They're going to spend it on Amazon probably, right? They're <laughs> going to turn around. They're going to say, my boss is the best boss in the world. I love this company. They just gave me $150,000. There's also a lot of shit that I need, uh, consumer goods and so on. Why not just buy it on Amazon? That money flows right back into Amazon. It heats up the economy. A strong economy is strong for Amazon because Amazon has so much domination over the economy that their fate effectively tracks the economy uh, and vice versa. I, it, it's so obvious that like that was that would have that it's not even an altruistic move. It would have been a bit a, a great self serving move to actually do that. And I think there's something very similar with the, the venture capitalists spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars on bullshit rather than literally, you know, why give away all of these uh, consumer subsidies via Uber? Just just do direct transfers to people. They'll spend, you know, they'll spend it. They'll heat up the economy. A strong economy is good for a venture capitalist. I like. I don't know. I I, I think there's there's something to it where they they are so fundamentally unable to like be uh, outward looking in the in the way that they spend and manage their their money this is just this is my own little tangent here that makes it makes no sense that the the way that they are so adherent to kind of keynesian spending but also so uh beholden to uh like an austrian economics like a super superman in the market kind of mentality I've, I just another argument, I think, for why these things should all be public utilities <laughs> and, uh, at the very, like, you know, public services and why, uh, the, the, the venture capitalists who act like central planners for the economy do not actually have, uh, the ability or responsibility or values needed to create an economy that works for, for other people. They are just way too good at, uh, destroying capital uh that's really what it boils down to they love it
on that rant, uh, <laughs> Aaron, this has been a really great conversation. Uh, I, I, touching on something that I think is is just something we've been wanting to talk about for a while, and and uh, your work on it has just become like increasingly more and more relevant, but in different ways uh, as we see this like hyper compression of time happening in terms of like the the life cycle of these startups investments uh and and their downfall so is there anything you would like to leave us on where can in any thoughts where can people find your work all of that good stuff uh before we go well yeah i'm um i've got a paper that's under review that i'm really excited about um i cite plenty of your reporting ed um, that's just called platform sabotage. And I probably shouldn't talk about it cause it's under review, but it, this is, this is my attempt to kind of make sense of these, um, these uh, hypocrisies and contradictions, um, in the way that platforms govern. And I'm, I'm just excited about that cause it really brings together all these, these things together, um, uh, to really think about these companies as saboteurs. Um, I'm drawing on, on Thorsten Veblen's idea of capitalist sabotage uh, and through the business enterprise and how platforms have gone about it. You know, everything from uh, predatory pricing to predatory inclusion with, you know, engineering financial indebtedness uh, with drivers through their car leasing programs and such. Um, so that's something I'm stoked about. Uh, I just want to say it's been a real pleasure to, to come jam with you guys. Um, you know, uh, love the show. Oh, uh, well, you, you know, we're excited. For we're both excited for that paper. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Especially building off, uh, Veblen's capitalist saboteurs fun. That's a fun concept. I'm very excited. Yeah. We're, we're, we're very excited for that paper. So we're going to have to have you back on to, mm-hmm. uh, to talk about it. You've, you've, uh, you've sealed your fate on that one by bringing <laughs> it up. <laughs> Happy to, uh, yeah, no, this, this is, this is great. Uh, we'll have links to your book and your article, uh, on dark stores and pandemic urban, uh, platform urbanism in a pandemic. We'll have links to all that in the episode description. Good, good stuff. Everyone go read it, check it out because, um, again, it's all about the aftermath. I think, right. We see the rise and demise of these things, but they don't just go away, uh, or they're rather their effects, uh, material, financial, market, labor, cat, like all these consequences don't just go away once they, uh, decide one day to, uh, uh, go into administration and say, you know, we don't exist anymore. The consequences still do. We live in the aftermath of their death. Um, and, and so what it, you know, what's really necessary for us is how, is what we do with that aftermath, right? Like what do we build in its place? Um, you know, or, or, or not, right? What, what do we leave to decay, um, and for whom and where? And so I think this is really to me, uh, important and your work sets us up very well for thinking more critically, more intentionally about, uh, the aftermath. So with that, thank you again, Aaron, uh, and everybody else can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for an additional premium episode every single week. So until next time later. Adios.
Machine Kill.